When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. So I told a small lie at the end of the last episode about Gilgamesh, where I said that uh, the next one, this one, would contain less talking before and after reading from the poem. Um, but as this will be the, uh, uh, the final episode where I read excerpts from Gilgamesh, and as this episode will contain uh, the uh, Gilgamesh's rendition of the flood story, uh, with its many, many parallels um, to the biblical flood myth, um, I do think it's worth reading, just to start, uh, this page and a half or so from Stephen Mitchell's version of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which describes how the, uh, the poem was discovered in the first place, and also, uh, and secondary, how the flood story was discovered and what a shock it was to the Victorian mind. And this is what it says. The story of its discovery and decipherment is itself as fabulous as a tale from the Thousand and One Nights. A young English traveler named Austin Henry Laird, who was passing through the Middle East on his way to Ceylon, heard that there were antiquities buried in the mounds of what is now the city of Mosul, and halted his journey and began excavations in 1844. These mounds turned out to contain the ruined palaces of Nineveh, the ancient capital of Assyria, including what was left of the library of the last great Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, 668-627 to BCE. In amazement, Laird and his assistant, Hormuz Razam, quote, found room after room lined with carved stone bas-reliefs of demons and deities, scenes of battle, royal hunts and ceremonies, doorways flanked by enormous winged bulls and lions, and, inside some of the chambers, tens of thousands of clay tablets inscribed with the curious and then undeciphered cuneiform, quote, wedge-shaped script, end quote. Over 25,000 of these tablets, Mitchell continues, were shipped back to the British Museum. When cuneiform was officially deciphered in 1857, scholars discovered that the tablets were written in Akkadian, 
and ancient Semitic language cognate with Hebrew and Arabic. Fifteen years went by before anyone noticed the tablets on which Gilgamesh was inscribed. Then, in 1872, a young British museum curator named George Smith realized that one of the fragments told the story of a Babylonian Noah who survived a great flood sent by the gods. On looking down the third column, Smith wrote, my eye caught the statement that the ship rested on the mountains of Nizir, followed by the account of the sending forth of the dove and its finding no resting place and returning. I saw at once that I had here discovered a portion, at least, of the Chaldean account of the deluge. To a Victorian, this was a spectacular discovery, because it seemed to be independent corroboration of the historicity of the biblical flood. Victorians believed that the Genesis story was much older than it is. When Smith saw these lines, according to a later account, he said, quote, I am the first man to read that after more than 2,000 years of oblivion. Setting the tablet on the table, the account continues, he jumped up and rushed about the room in a great state of excitement and, to the astonishment of those present, began to undress himself. End quote. We aren't told, Mitchell continues, if he took off just his coat or if he continued to strip down further. I like to imagine him in his euphoria going all the way and running stark naked like in Kidu among the astonished black-clad Victorian scholars. And that comes from the introduction to Stephen Mitchell's version of Gilgamesh. Uh, so when we last left Gilgamesh, uh, Enkidu had uh, incurred the wrath of the goddess Inanna, or Ishtar, and had been stricken with an illness that soon led to his death. And Gilgamesh, this supposedly worldly and mighty person, uh, collapses on himself and into himself in grief, and decides to wander the world in his grief, uh, not only over his friend, uh, his friend's death, but also in realizing that he himself will also one day die, uh, that he is mortal. And it's just worth saying before I continue reading that this is also the great power of uh, myths uh, and even fairy tales uh, like this, that we, um, if we remember um, even the uh, earliest uh, tales of the Buddha have him uh, somehow being unaware uh, in either as a teenager or even as late as 30, depending on which version you read. Um, he is unaware that people grow sick, uh, get old, and die. And uh, in the same way, Gilgamesh is apparently unaware of this fact or unable to deal with it. And it's one of the power of stories like these, that you can have a frame story that seems uh, so unlikely, and yet you can do immensely humane and human things with it, and talk about real and eternal longings and anxieties along the way. So when Gilgamesh uh, heads off on his 
journey to uh, not only uh, deal with his friend's death, his own, Gilgamesh's own immortality, and uh, perhaps to find immortality, uh, he comes to uh, the end of the world, the edge of the world as he knows it, and he meets a man named uh, Utnapishtim. And in the translation by Andrew George that I'll be reading from, uh, he is referred to as Utnapishti. And when they first meet, um, they have sort of a discussion about the inevitability of death. And I will read that part first and then get into uh, Utnapishti's account of the flood. And this is how it goes. Uh, Gilgamesh is speaking at this point. He says, Enkidu, indeed, they took to his doom. But you, Utnapishti, you toiled away. And what did you achieve? You exhaust yourself with ceaseless toil. You fill your sinews with sorrow, bringing forward the end of your days. Man is snapped off like a reed in a cane break. The comely young man, the pretty young woman, all too soon in their prime, death abducts them. No one at all sees death. No one at all sees the face of death. No one at all hears the voice of death, death so savage, who hacks men down. Ever do we build our households, ever do we make our nests, ever do brothers divide their inheritance, ever do feuds arise in the land. Ever the river has risen and brought us the flood, the mayfly floating on the water. On the face of the sun its countenance gazes, then, all of a sudden, nothing is there. The abducted and the dead, how like is their lot! But never was drawn the likeness of death, never in the land did the dead greet a man. The Anunnaki, the great gods, held in assembly, Mamitum, maker of destiny, fixed fates with them. Both death and life they have established, but the day of death they do not disclose. And of course I made a mistake there that he is not speaking to Utnapishti because Utnapishti has never had to deal with any of this. Because as we are about to find out, uh, Utnapishti is, survives the flood and is made immortal. And that is the reason that Gilgamesh has sought him out. Uh, so this begins Tablet 11 and the flood story. Said Gilgamesh to him, to Utnapishti the distant, I look at you, Utnapishti. Your form is no different. You are just like me. You are not any different. You are just like me. I was fully intent on making you fight, but now in your presence my hand is stayed. How was it you stood with the gods in assembly? How did you? find the life eternal, said Utnapishti to him, to Gilgamesh. Let me disclose, O Gilgamesh, a matter most secret. To you I will tell a mystery of gods. The town of Shurapak, a city well known to you, which stands on the bank of the river Euphrates, this city was old, 
the gods once were in it, when the great gods decided to send down the deluge. Their father, Anu, swore on oath, and their counselor, the hero Enlil, their chamberlain, the god Ninurta, and their sheriff, the god Enugi. Princely Ea swore with them also, repeating their words to a fence made of reed. O fence of reed, O wall of brick, hear this, O fence, pay heed, O wall. O man of Shurpuk, son of Ubar Tutu, demolish the house and build a boat. Abandon wealth and seek survival. Spurn property, save life. Take on board the boat all living things seed. The boat you build, her dimensions all shall be equal. Her length and breadth shall be the same. Cover her with a roof like the ocean below. And Uttanapishti says, I understood and spoke to Ea, my master. I obey, O master, what thus you told me. I understood and I shall do it. But how do I answer my city, the crowd and the elders? Ea opened his mouth to speak, saying to me, his servant, Also you will say to them this, for sure the god Enlil feels for me hatred. In your city I can live no longer. I can tread no more on Enlil's ground. I must go to the ocean below to live with Ea, my master, and he will send you a rain of plenty, an abundance of birds, a profusion of fishes. He will provide a harvest of riches. In the morning, he will send you a shower of bread cakes, and in the evening, a torrent of wheat. At the very first glimmer of brightening dawn, at the gate of Atrahasis, assembled the land. The carpenter carrying his hatchet, the reed worker carrying his stone, the shipwright bearing his heavyweight axe. The young men were, and there's a gap in the text, the old men bearing ropes of palm fiber. The rich man was carrying the pitch. The poor man brought the tackle. By the fifth day I had set her hull in position. One acre was her area, ten rods the height of her sides. At ten rods also the sides of her roof were each the same length. I set in place her body. I drew up her design. Six decks I gave her, dividing her thus into seven. Into nine compartments I divided her interior. I struck the bilge plugs into her middle. I saw to the punting holes and put in the tackle. Three myriad measures of pitch I poured in a furnace, three myriad of tar I, and there's a gap, within. Three myriad of oil fetched the workforce of porters, aside from the myriad of oil consumed in libations. There were two myriad of oil stowed away by the boatmen. For my workmen I butchered oxen, and lambs I slaughtered daily, beer and ale oil and wine, like water from a river, I gave my workforce, so they enjoyed a feast, like the days of the new year. At sunrise, I set my hand to the oiling. Before the sun set, the boat was complete. And there's a gap in the text. Were very arduous, 
From back to front we moved poles for the slipway, until two-thirds of the boat had entered the water. Everything I owned I loaded aboard. All the silver I owned I loaded aboard. All the gold I owned I loaded aboard. All the living creatures I had I loaded aboard. I sent on board all my kith and kin, the beasts of the field, the creatures of the wild, and members of every skill and craft. The time which the sun god appointed, in the morning he will send you a shower of bread cakes, and in the evening a torrent of wheat. Go into the boat and seal your hatch. That time had now come. In the morning he will send you a shower of bread cakes, and in the evening a torrent of wheat. I examined the look of the weather. The weather to look at was full of foreboding. I went into the boat and sealed my hatch. To the one who sealed the boat, Putsur and Leel the shipwright, I gave my palace with all its goods. At the very first glimmer of brightening dawn, there rose on the horizon a dark cloud of black, and bellowing within it was Adad the storm god. The gods Shulat and Hanish were going before him, bearing his throne over mountain and land. The god Irakal was uprooting the mooring poles. Ninurta, passing by, made the weirs overflow. The Anunnaki gods carried torches of fire, scorching the country with brilliant flashes. The stillness of the storm god passed over the sky, and all that was bright then turned into darkness. He charged the land like a bull on the rampage. He smashed it in pieces like a vessel of clay. For a day the gale winds flattened the country. Quickly they blew, and then came the deluge. Like a battle the cataclysm passed over the people. One man could not discern another, nor could people be recognized amid the destruction. Even the gods took fright at the deluge. They left and went up to the heaven of Anu, lying like dogs, curled up in the open. The goddess cried out like a woman in childbirth. Belet Ili wailed, whose voice is so sweet. And she said, The olden times have turned to clay, because I spoke evil in the gods' assembly. How could I speak evil in the gods' assembly, and declare a war to destroy my people? It is I who give birth. These people are mine. And now, like fish, they fill the ocean. The Anunnaki gods were weeping with her, wet-faced with sorrow. They were weeping with her. Their lips were parched and stricken with fever. For six days and seven nights there blew the wind, the downpour, the gale, the deluge. It flattened the land. By the seventh day when it came, the gale relented, the deluge ended. The ocean grew calm that it thrashed like a woman in labor. The tempest grew still. The deluge ended. I looked at the weather. This is Udinapishti again. I looked at the weather. It was quiet and still. But all the people had turned to clay. The floodplain was flat like the roof of a house. I opened a vent. On my cheeks fell the sunlight. Down I sat. I knelt and I wept. Down my cheeks the tears were coursing. 
I scanned the horizons, the edge of the ocean. In fourteen places there rose an island. On the mountain of Nemush, the boat ran aground. Mount Nemush held the boat fast, allowed it no motion. One day in a second, Mount Nemush held the boat fast, allowed it no motion. A third day and a fourth, Mount Nemush held the boat fast, allowed it no motion. A fifth day and a sixth, Mount Nemush held the boat fast, allowed it no motion. The seventh day, when it came, I brought out a dove, I let it loose. Off went the dove, but then it returned. There was no place to land, so back it came to me. I brought out a swallow, I let it loose. Off went the swallow, but then it returned. There was no place to land, so back it came to me. I brought out a raven, I let it loose. Off went the raven, that saw the waters receding. Finding food, bowing and bobbing, it did not come back to me. I brought out an offering to the four winds made sacrifice. Incense I placed on the peak of the mountain. Seven flasks and seven I set in position. Reed, cedar, and myrtle I piled beneath them. The gods did smell the savor. The gods did smell the savor sweet. The gods gathered like flies around the man making sacrifice. Then, at once, Belet Eli arrived. She lifted the flies of lapis lazuli that Anu had made for their courtship. And she says, O gods, let these great beads and this necklace of mine make me remember these days and never forget them. All the gods shall come to the incense. But to the incense let Enlil not come, because he lacked counsel and brought on the deluge and delivered my people into destruction. Then at once Enlil arrived. He saw the boat. He was seized with anger, filled with rage at the divine Igiji. And he says, From where escaped this living being? No man was meant to survive the destruction. Ninurta opened his mouth to speak, saying to the hero, Enlil, Who, if not Ea, could cause such a thing? Ea alone knows how all things are done. Ea opened his mouth to speak, saying to the hero, Enlil, You, the sage of the gods, the hero, how could you lack counsel and bring on the deluge? On him who transgresses, inflict his crime, on him who does wrong, inflict his wrongdoing. Slack off, lest it snap. Pull tight, lest it slacken. Instead of your causing the deluge, a lion could have risen and diminished the people. Instead of your causing the deluge, a wolf could have risen and diminished the people. Instead of your causing the deluge, a famine could have happened and slaughtered the land. Instead of your causing the deluge, the plague god could have risen and slaughtered the land. It was not I disclosed the great god's secret. Atrahasis, I let see a vision, and thus he learned our secret. And now decide what to do with him. Enlil came up inside the boat. He took hold of my hand and brought me on board. He brought aboard my wife and made her kneel at my side. 
he touched our foreheads, standing between us to bless us. And he says, In the past, Udinapishti was a mortal man, but now he and his wife shall become like us gods. Udinapishti shall dwell far away, where the rivers flow forth. So far away they took me, and settled me where the rivers flow forth. But you now, who will convene for you the gods' assembly? And how he is speaking to Gilgamesh again. Who will convene for you the gods' assembly, so you can find the life you search for? For six days and seven nights, come, do without slumber. And this is Gilgamesh's test, of course, to go six days without sleeping. And this is what happens. As soon as Gilgamesh squatted down in his haunches, sleep like a fog already breathed over him, said Udinapishti to her, to his wife, See the fellow who so desired life. Sleep like a fog already breathed over him. Said his wife to him, to, to Utanapishti the distant, Touch the man, and make him awake. The way he came he shall go back in well-being. By the gate he came forth he shall return to his land. Said Utanapishti to her, to his wife, Man is deceitful. He will deceive you. Go, bake for him his daily bread loaf, and line them up by his head and mark on the wall the days that he sleeps. So she baked for him his daily bread loaf. She lined them up by his head, noting on the wall the days that he slept. His first bread loaf was all dried up. The second was leathery, soggy the third. The fourth flour cake had turned to white. The fifth had cast a mold of gray. Fresh baked was the sixth the seventh still on the coals. Then he touched him, and the man awoke. Said Gilgamesh to him, to Udinapishti the distant, No sooner had sleep spilled itself over me than forthwith you touched me and made me awake. Said Udinapishti to him, to Gilgamesh, Come, Gilgamesh, count me your bread loaves. Then you will learn the days that you slept. Your first bread loaf was all dried up, the second was leathery, soggy the third, the fourth flour cake had turned to white, the fifth had cast a mold of gray, fresh baked was the sixth, the seventh still on the coals, and only then did I touch you. Said Gilgamesh to him, to Udinapishti the distant, O oh, Udinapishti, what should I do, and where should I go? A thief has taken hold of my flesh, for there in my bedchamber death does abide, and wherever I turn, there too will be death. Said Udinapishti to him, to the boatman Urshanabi, May the Kay reject you, Urshanabi, and the fairies scorn you. You who used to walk this shore be banished from it now. As for that man you led here, his body is tousled with matted hair. The pelts have ruined his body's beauty. Take him, Urshanabi. Lead him to the wash tub. Leave or have him wash his matted locks as clean as can be. 
Let him cast off his pelts, and the sea bear them off. Let his body be soaked till fair. Let a new kerchief be made for his head. Let him wear royal robes, the dress fitting his dignity. Until he goes home to his city, until he reaches the end of his road, let the robes show no mark, but stay fresh and new. Or Shanabi took him and led him to the wash tub. He washed his matted locks as clean as could be. He cast off his pelts, and the sea bore them off. His body was soaked till fair. He made a new kerchief for his head. He wore royal robes, the dress fitting his dignity. Until he goes home to his city, until he reaches the end of his road, let the robes show no mark, but stay fresh and new. Gilgamesh and Orishanabi crewed the boat. They launched the craft and crewed it themselves. Said his wife to him to Udinapishti the distant, Gilgamesh came here by toil and travail. What have you given for his homeward journey? And Gilgamesh, he picked up a punting pole. He brought the boat back near the shore. Said Udinapishti to him, to Gilgamesh, You came here, O Gilgamesh, by toil and by travail. What do I give you for your homeward journey? Let me disclose, O Gilgamesh, a matter most secret. To you I will tell a mystery of the gods. There is a plant that looks like a box thorn. It has prickles like a dog rose, and will prick one who plucks it. But if you can possess this plant, you will be again as you were in your youth. Just as soon as Gilgamesh heard what he said, he opened a channel, and there's a gap in the text. Heavy stones he tied to his feet. Actually, there's a gap of... Yeah, there's a gap. Uh, heavy stones he tied to his feet, and they pulled him down, and there's a gap, to the ocean below. He took the plant and pulled it up and lifted it. The heavy stones he cut loose from his feet, and the sea cast him on its shore. Said Gilgamesh to him to Orshanabi, the boatman, this plant, or shinabi, is the plant of heartbeat. With it, a man can regain his vigor. To Uruk the sheepfold, I will take it. To an ancient, I will feed some and put the plant to the test. Its name shall be Old Man Grown Young. I will eat it myself and be again as I was in my youth. At twenty leagues, they broke bread. At thirty leagues, they stopped for the night. Gilgamesh found a pool whose water was cool. Down he went into it to bathe in the water. Of the plant's fragrance, a snake caught scent, came up in silence, and bore the plant off. As it turned away, it sloughed its skin. Then Gilgamesh sat down and wept. Down his cheeks the tears were coursing. He spoke to Urshanabi the boatman. For whom, Urshanabi, toiled my arms so hard? For whom ran dry the blood of my heart? 
Not for myself did I find a bounty. For the lion of the earth I have done a favor. Now, far and wide, the tide is rising. Having opened the channel, I abandoned the tools. What thing would I find that served as my landmark? Had I only turned back, I'd left the boat on the shore. At twenty leagues they broke bread. At thirty leagues they stopped for the night. When they arrived in Uruk, the sheepfold, said Gilgamesh to him, to Urshanabi the boatman, O Urshanabi, climb Uruk's wall and walk back and forth. Survey its foundations. Examine the brickwork. Were its bricks not fired in an oven? Did the seven sages not lay its foundations? A square mile is a city. A square mile date grove. A square mile is clay pit. Half a square mile, the temple of Ishtar. Three square miles and a half is Uruk's expanse. So that is the end of the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, where Gilgamesh comes to realize that immortality will not come through living forever in his physical body, but will come with um, the city that he has built, the walls he has built, um, and uh, as the poet of Gilgamesh might say, with the poem that has been written about him. Um, it's a very strange uh, end to a story that I don't think, um, if it were written today, obviously, it would be satisfying at all. Uh, the idea that you have this huge buildup towards Gilgamesh uh, wanting to achieve immortality and literally going to the ends of the earth to find it, uh, coming to a man who may well have the answer for him, uh, hearing his long story, uh, going through this test of whether or not he can stay awake for six days or not, and then simply having it hinge on, by the way, uh, there's a plant, if you can get it, use it, and you might become young again. I think what all of this is evidence of, um, which is a remarkable thing about these stories and these poems and uh, this uh, mythological and religious literature, what I think it's evidence of is uh, a handful of traditions sort of being tossed together. Um, you have the, the flood account, which seems very self-contained. It's almost as if you could... Uh, uh, pull it out and uh, uh, make it stand on its own, and it probably was. Uh, it probably did stand on its own at one point. And you have the barely one page, uh, maybe three quarters of a page, uh, description of uh, Udinapishti telling Gilgamesh that, oh, by the way, there is this plant, um, which sounds like uh, uh, a kind of folk tale that also once stood on its own and came from another story entirely. Um, and on top of that, you have this character, Gilgamesh, who uh, in previous episodes um, and previous stories seems like some kind of, uh, some kind of all-brawn sort of 
meathead who just doesn't know how the world works. And, and somehow, somehow it's this character that has given one of the most amazing speeches uh, that I know of that, that in Andrew George's uh, translation, it's only four lines. And it's when he says, Oh, Udinapishti, what should I do and where should I go? A thief has taken hold of my flesh, for there in my bedchamber death does abide, and wherever I turn, there too will be death. Um, it's just incredible. Um, and the fact that it comes at the end of another uh, um, another uh, scene that could almost be lifted out uh, from a separate story, the one where um, uh, where they check to see if he is really fit for immortality. And of course they know immediately that he is not by seeing whether or not he can stay awake for six days. And that itself is, is uh, the beginning of a long tradition in literature and the visual arts of equating sleep with death, uh, of equating sleep with mortality and weakness and, uh, and all the rest of it. Um, and the fact that all of this exists in uh, one of the earliest stories, uh, one of the earliest surviving narrative stories is just incredible. Um, there's an awful lot of other uh, Sumerian, Akkadian, and Mesopotamian literature that I could be reading after this story, but that I simply won't get to, mostly because it is either uh, liturgical. Um, there, there are a lot of ritual texts, a lot of spells for uh, mundane and important things, whether keeping uh, feral dogs away from me or just wanting to have a successful birth. Um, there are prayers to the gods and the goddesses. And there are other narrative poems, but they, uh, they center uh, the great ones center almost completely on the gods uh, themselves and aren't nearly as interesting as Gilgamesh is. Um, and I, I just find it incredible every time I come back to this story how much is here and how much is here from the very beginning. Um, I'm reminded of the fact uh, that there is a, a story about Picasso uh, of him supposedly uh, going into the cave of either Lascaux or Altamira, I can't remember which, in the, in the late 1930s, to be shown the paintings inside those caves that are uh, anywhere between 15 and 30,000 years old, the paintings there of, uh, of animals. And uh, supposedly when Picasso comes out, he says, we haven't learned very much since then. Um, now, I think it's been proven both by uh, Picasso uh, scholars and by uh, archaeologists that this is, uh, that this story is almost certainly apocryphal and never happened. But I think the phrase itself uh, uh, can point back to Gilgamesh as well. 
Um, it doesn't need to be, doesn't need to have actually happened to have some real truth in it. Um, even in these very early stories, even in the advent of writing and of poetry and of narrative art, uh, we got it. We figured it out almost immediately how to get this done, how to tell these stories. Um, and before I end here, I just did want to say a few things uh, about perhaps the elephant in the room, which is the biblical flood story. Um, as you could tell from the excerpt I had from Stephen Mitchell, um, when the Epic of Gilgamesh was first discovered um, and the flood account was uh, discovered, it was assumed that um, that the Mesopotamian account relied on relied on and copied um, uh, the Genesis copied from the account of the book of Genesis. Now nowadays it is almost uh, universally accepted that um, if the uh, Mesopotamian account wasn't uh, a direct analog to the Genesis account, it's it's almost certain that the Mesopotamian account came first and uh, by whatever by whatever route it took, it influenced the uh, biblical authors uh, second. Um, and, uh, but but it, it isn't enough simply to cynically say, uh, as people like to do, well, the Bible copied, uh, the biblical author copied this, and that's all you need to say about it, um, especially if this series of great myths is going to go on and on, as I hope it will, it is worth seeing what that means. What does it mean for um, a neighboring culture to take up uh, one of the uh, beloved and bedrock stories of another culture and to twist it and change it in very important ways? And I think it's worth looking at uh, what the wonderful uh, 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 biblical commentator Nahum Sarna uh, had to say about it. Um, in his commentary to the book of Genesis, he points to a number of, uh, after pointing out the many similarities between the two flood accounts, he points to the many, uh, the many places where the two stories diverge and go their own separate ways. And I think it's worth um, reading off a few of those. Uh, the first and probably most important one is that in the Mesopotamian flood account, whether in Gilgamesh or in another poem called uh, Atrahasis, uh, the reason for the flood in the Mesopotamian accounts is simply that the noise that human beings are making on earth uh, is, is so annoying and so distracting to the gods that they want to do away with humanity entirely. Um, whereas, of course, in the Bible, it is said uh, the reason is a moral one. It is said that humanity has become so corrupt that God simply wants to start over. Um, in the Mesopotamian account, uh, either Atrahasis or Utanapishti, um, or Gilgamesh even as well, uh, they are presented as heroes, uh, as larger than life. Whereas Noah uh, is uh, 
just your average person. Um, it, it is said in the Genesis account that um, Noah was righteous in his generation. And as soon as rabbinical commentary began, uh, it was suggested that that was sort of a backhanded compliment, which is to say that in a world uh, overrun by rapists and murderers, Noah was a good guy. But if you had a slightly, even slightly better world, Noah would probably not be a good guy. So uh, Noah is presented as a flawed and mortal person throughout, whereas Utanapishti is um, segregated off from humanity and made immortal. Um, and that, of course, brings up the other point that um, in the biblical account, while God does want to do away with humanity, uh, he also sends the flood uh, and tells Noah about it specifically so that he can restart the human race and see if humanity and his relationship with humanity can be started all over again. Um, if the Mesopotamian gods had had their way, uh, humanity would have been wiped out completely and there would have been no do-over at all. Um, a minor sort of quibbling point is that uh, in the biblical account uh, it is said that Noah's ship uh, is not described as having a rudder or a sail. It is, you might say, the earliest version of God being the co-pilot, whereas in the Mesopotamian account uh, while the ship is described as being, the ship that Utendapishti builds is described as being a cube, uh, there are still oarsmen uh, directing the ship. Um, and it is said in the biblical account that all that Noah brings are, other than his family, are the animals on the ship, whereas Atrahasis and Utendapishti uh, take all of their belongings, all of their gold, etc. And um, most uh, uh, viscerally for me, the, the greatest um, difference is in, uh, comes where the, in the Mesopotamian version, uh, when the flood comes, the gods in heaven, or uh, in the upper world, you might say, are terrified of the flood gets out of hand, the storm gets out of hand, and even they uh, do not have control over it in the end. And uh, it even says that they, as you just heard, that they cowered like dogs. Um, whereas uh, in the biblical account, uh, it apparently all goes as God intended it. Um, especially with this last point, you can uh, make an argument about, uh, with all, about all of these points, about uh, which story is better. Uh, in, in which story do, does either the biblical God or the Mesopotamian gods come out as better or more vicious? Um, while I see the, the Mesopotamian gods' uh, motive for doing away with the entirety of humanity as being fairly vile. Uh, I can say the same thing about um, 
the biblical God as well, uh, wiping out all of humanity without uh, without any question as to possible innocent victims. And um, even as someone who recently converted uh, to Judaism, I still find it very hard to take whenever the flood story comes around each year, simply because the people that are left out of the flood story are all of the people, even the uh, even all of the corrupt humanity who apparently deserve it, uh, who would no doubt be banging on the side of Noah's boat, or when the uh, when the boat lands, would be just littering the uh, the the seas and the earth with their corpses. Um, it is not a pretty sight. Um, so that I almost take uh, some consolation, at least, that in the Mesopotamian version, that um, uh, that the gods don't have control over everything. The gods are terrified, and that uh, the gods might even regret having uh, sent the flood in the first place. Uh, but that leads on to other heady theological waters. Um, as I said, there are, there are uh, so many other great stories, poems, liturgical texts, um, myths, um, and narratives that come out of uh, Sumerian, Akkadian, and Mesopotamian literature. But to get the ball rolling on this series, um, the sort of, uh, the sort of uh, golden nugget of all of it uh, that sort of has everything in it is Gilgamesh, and uh, that is where I will go from there. Um, I will find something I believe to do with Egypt next, and that will be on the next episode. So thank you for listening. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.